Hello and welcome to the Real Maxime podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, private investor. The F Prime FinTech Index, an index that tracks 50 emerging publicly traded financial technology companies, is a helpful barometer of how investors and traders are assessing the FinTech universe. It's been a wild ride on the heels of the Fed-induced duration shock. While the index is up 100% year-to-date, it is still down 50% over the last three years in what seems to have been an indiscriminate reset of valuations. Revenue multiples have retraced firmly into the single digits, even for high-growth names, and are still a cyclical trough. But the details are more complex. In the cross-section of subsectors and names, the market is rewarding low-churn, recurring over reoccurring revenue streams high gross margins, and operational efficiency. Outperformers are the ones that can both reconfigure their cost structure and help others do so. The M&A environment in 2023 in many ways resembled the residential real estate market. Plenty of willing buyers and sellers anchored to historical valuation references. FinTech investment bankers have had their work cut out for them. Yet the second half of the year suddenly became busier. Companies having done the hard work of operational reconfiguration have now created a foundation for accretive acquisitions in order to boost their growth prospects in 2024. McKinsey's latest FinTech report mentions that about nearly 60% of FinTech executives say they are considering an acquisition in the next 18 months. My guest today has been doing financial technology deals on Wall Street before it was called FinTech. Michael Max Maxworthy has 20 years of investment banking and private equity experience in advising middle market companies in sectors such as fintech. As early as 2007 and 2008, Max was named to Investment Dealer Digest magazine 40 under 40 list of top international dealmakers. He is now a senior leader in the technology banking practice at DA Davidson Co. Growing up in rural Wisconsin, it wasn't obvious Max would end up a top dealmaker on Wall Street. Max began his career as a research assistant at Morgan Stanley. His breakthrough came when he was asked to join Marlin & Associates Holdings as a co-founder and executive managing director, where he advised on many successfully concluded mergers, acquisitions, capital raises, and valuations. But his upbringing has brought him a solid foundation and an ability to stay grounded throughout his journey. In this insightful episode, we discussed a wide variety and nuances of business models, capitalization, and valuation multiples in fintech, and the nuances of deal-making when different sets of stakeholders weigh on strategic decision-making and outcomes. Max holds degrees in finance and management information systems from the School of Management at Big Hampton University. He is a registered securities principal and holds Series 24-79-63. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So, grew up in Pewaukee, Wisconsin. It's a relatively unknown suburb outside Waukesha. I'm actually here in Chicago right now, and I'll be heading up to visit my family in Wednesday morning for Thanksgiving. And I've got more than enough family in Beloit, Burlington, Lake Geneva, and the like. So I grew up pretty normal suburban life. I'd eat sugary cereal in the morning, and during the summer, my mom would kick me out as soon as the sun came up, and I'd come home when the sun came down. I'd play in the back in the woods, a normal little life. In the late 80s, my dad, a mechanical engineer at the time, went on a business trip to Long Island, New York. They liked him, offered him a job on the spot. And so he moved us from backcountry Wisconsin to Long Island, which, to be honest, was a massive cultural shift for me. 
And dad took us into, I got a brother and a sister and they took us into the city from time to time. And it was just a lot to take in, to be honest. And my extended family here in Wisconsin still think it's crazy. I don't blame them. I spent about two decades in New York, like on and off, but like pretty much, I think I can count the full 20 years. So I've got a pretty good sample in the craziness. And I think like, how old were you when you started going into the city? Oh, gosh was sixth seventh grade we'd go dad would do the museum tours with me and mom would take me and my brother and sister to to some of the plays i still remember some of the plays they were you just don't see that stuff in chicago or pewaukee when you were that little nor did they really do a lot of that stuff the parents back in the 80s and the early 90s i think there's definitely exposure right i mean when i think about growing up so i did not grow up i grew up in paris and other countries well because my dad worked in oil, so spent quite a few years abroad. But I grew up in a fairly cosmopolitan city for whatever time I spent in Paris. But my friends who grew up in New York City, the thing that keeps coming back is this notion of exposure. You just get exposed to a lot very quickly, very early on, right? And I think on some level, it probably sets you apart from you know a lot of kids who grew up across the country. And you just, I think, get to learn a lot more. And it could be learning about different things, right? It could be like, to your point, exposure to some of the best museums and art shows and the culture and also the cosmopolitan exposure that pervades the city. But it's also some, it's positives, but it's also some negatives as well. But the gist of it is, I think by the time you get to college, you probably have been exposed to a lot more than, say, a kid if you'd grown up in Wisconsin, I would think. Well, just to take that one step further, I said I grew up in Pewaukee, and most of my extended family actually grew up on farms. So my mom, she grew up on a farm. She had 12 brothers and sisters. So we would go up to Boston, which is the town upstate, and we'd milk cows, and we'd hang out on the farm. I raised chickens as a kid, and you get that type of lifestyle, and then you go into New York. And remember, this is like the late 80s. You go into Times Square, and most people are really remembering Times Square as what happened in the 70s. And so that formed a bias towards what was going on in New York at the time. And it took time to get over that. A lot of time, actually. It sounds to me like it probably helped you stay grounded on some level, right? Like your upbringing and your family background. Like that, Was it helpful? As Because all of us who've navigated New York, like the business life, the personal life, you need a lot of grounding and you need a lot of discipline to be able to survive that long. So it sounds like you have, and obviously you've done incredibly well. Was this helpful? Was the context and the upbringing, those values helpful in guiding your path through adulthood and your professional life? Yeah, I'd say adulthood and professional life being, yeah, being paramount there, where I grew up with very, very much the old school Midwest worth ethic, where you just grind it out every day, all day. You do the best job that you possibly can. And either the opportunities will come that way with a little bit of luck, but you'll earn your station at the end of the day you'll earn it. That does keep me going even now. Where you come into New York, and remember, I, I came farm country, Wisconsin, and there's a ton of money in New York. And that does help keep you grounded. It also gives you a little bit of sense of wishfulness, where you want to go, how you want to get there, and what are you going to work for? Yeah. And so in terms of what you gravitated towards in terms of studies, like were you more of a bookworm? Did you play sports? Like trying to get a sense of what kind of person were you developing into? 
Definitely a bookworm. I mean, I went to Binghamton University, upstate New York, and I took every single course I could inside the business school that would be available to me, including becoming a teaching assistant during my senior year. I just wanted to have as much exposure to everything in that world as I, I possibly could. Not to think that I wanted to be the smartest guy in the room or anything, but I just I wanted to know how much it essentially just encased inside the business world and how I would go about navigating. I was a firm believer, and God bless my dad for instilling this in me. He's like, look, you're going to be 2021. 20, you don't know what you want to do just yet. Go out there and experiment and find out what you can and figure out what you like. And you're going to go through, in those days, two or three, maybe even four jobs your entire life. Now that's changed quite a bit. But he said, go learn and figure it out what you want. Don't think that you're just going to come out of school and become a, an accountant and be an accountant the rest of your life. You're too young for that. And so what was your initial field of study in college? Like, What was your undergrad major? I did management information systems and finance. Got it. And so where did you get a sense of, did so going back to what your dad articulated to you, did you give yourself a chance to discover and learn about different things or did you go straight into an analyst program and recruit it out of college? No, during my, was my sophomore to junior year, I got a summer internship at a stockbroker firm in Long Island called Continental. When you think stockbroker, you immediately think of Boiler Room, you know, the movie, right? Yep. Bucket shop. And that's kind of like what it was, right? You're just sitting there dialing for dollars all day. They give you a stack of index cards and you've got your boss next to you that once you get somebody on the phone, you're going to give it to him to handle the clothes. And I studied for my series exams and stuff like that. And I didn't know if that was what I was going to be, but it, it did help form my resilience on getting told no all the time. And that'll actually go into how it helped my career form. The basis of it, actually, when we started the firm, Marlin and Associates, back in twenty in 2001. But the idea of just like sitting there, just grinding it out, call after call after call, was a big motivator. It was, it was actually a big influence on me. At anyone who wants to take rejection and learn how to handle it should fundraise in 2023. It's been one of those years <laughs> where <laughs> you'll hear no a lot more than you're used to. Just wanted to throw it out there. It's a, it's a rough environment right now. So walk us through the career progression. So you start in a stockbroker. What brings you on the deal side eventually? What was the progression there? And were there any instrumental relationships along the way that you developed? Mentorship, maybe folks that you met that really changed that trajectory? So graduated Binghamton in 98, went to Morgan Stanley, worked there for a couple of months, realized that wasn't for me went out and applied for essentially two different jobs at the same time, right? So I walked downtown to AIG down on Pine Street, walked into the HR office, and I got an analyst job inside their risk department. At the same exact time, I got rejected for an analyst job at a private equity shop at the time called Verona Suler and Associates in Midtown. Verona's, they had three funds. It was the communication fund, one, two, and three, and they were buying everything from Dish networks to newsletters to even back then it was audio book clubs and stuff like that. And so I worked at essentially what I did was I worked in the risk department, which was feeding deals and ideas and analysis to not only insurance side of the underwriting side of AIG, but also they had a growing private equity piece there. Worked there for about eight or nine months during the day. And then at night and on the weekends, I'd go to Verona Suler because I lost the analyst job, but I was so persistent to the hiring guy, the hiring manager, that he essentially gave in and gave me a nighttime and a weekend job. And 
it was great. I mean, I essentially learned I had two different jobs. I was making plenty of money and I was learning two different industries at the exact same time. After a couple of months, Veronis, if for the people that know that firm, it essentially was the place to be in the communication, internet, or online software business about private equity world. We used to have guys like Barry Diller and Stumner Redstone walk the halls because they were in their heyday of just of cranking on deals and setting up their empires, right? And for John and John, John Suler and John Veronis, to sit there and take that firm from what was, I think, roughly 50 people to opening up offices overseas and turning that into, I think, about 120 people at, at its height and doing monster deals inside the communication space. They brought in a guy named Ken Marlin back in, what is this, 99, maybe, maybe 2000, early 2000s. And Ken had been essentially one of the senior members of the strategic essentially strategic group inside Dun and Bradstreet during the 80s and 90s. And if you remember Dun and Bradstreet back then, that used to be one of the largest software providers globally. So Ken came in and helped the company essentially buy companies over a couple of years periods and blew and just essentially grew that into a massive, massive monster. And then he spent the later part of the 90s essentially exiting, where the shareholder shift had been to instead of build, let's get rid of and return cash. So Ken was brought in to Veronis to help essentially let them understand what was online business models, what was the internet, how is this going to change their investing style. We got to do a couple of deals together. He became a close friend, mentor. He took me under his wing. And then late 2001, after the crash had started, he, I, and two others broke off to form Marlin and Associates. Pure boutique model, helping the lower end of the middle market, essentially be buyers, be sellers, raise capital in some cases, help them figure out if they should go left or right in the market with some corporate finance work. Because of Ken's background at Dun & Bradstreet, which was primarily fintech focused. So he used to help run companies or buy companies and support companies like Moody's, Interactive Data and the like. And he eventually ran a large piece of the financial information piece before he left. He and I got to do, we, I mean, essentially our network was the fintech world because Ken's job was to go out there and get clients and work deals in the very beginning of the Marlin days. So that's transformational, right? And so I didn't necessarily keep track of the exact years here, but it sounds to me like you were still very early in your career right, when that happened, right? So when the decision was made to start this business, was the idea that you were going to be really in the trenches and cranking and helping those guys with deal execution, whereas they'd already obviously had the Rolodex and the network to bring deals to the table, right? Yeah, you're spot on. I mean, remember 2001 to 2003, most people on the street were either hoping to keep their jobs, or if you were young like I was, you were probably thinking about going back and getting your MBA, or you were applying for anything and out there just because it probably gave you a little bit more of a comfort level that that job will be around in one or two years. And so I thought, so when Ken approached me, the idea in my mind was really, do I stick around and hope that my job stays here? If not, then I got to go out and essentially just compete with everybody else applying for jobs and everybody else going back to school. So you are damned if you do, damned if you don't on both sides of that. And to the idea of being young and having a little bit of money saved up that could help support me to try something kind of unique and daring and different, it was great. And from a professional development point of view, yeah, you, you hit it right there, where I would be doing nothing but essentially a transaction execution. So I would do nothing but hone my skills back then doing just that. 
rather than in the traditional sense where Veronis was, there's a lot of business development and marketing and, and essentially, you know, pipeline filling. I think there's no better way, quote unquote, to get your MBA than, than I mean, those opportunities just, they come like literally once in, in a lifetime, like once in a career and the exposure, you're still, you're doing grunt work as a banker, but you're doing so supposedly like I'm interpreting this as like not that many you know, degrees removed from Ken and these guys, right? So you're seeing the entire process. You're obviously very, very busy and being put through a lot, but it's kind of like drinking from the fire hose. But at the same time, you'd never get that exposure at the same time in your career at a bank, quite frankly. So you're right. This sounds like a transformational moment. So for listeners who don't necessarily like you and I know investment banking, could you just give us a sense of what the business does and the assignments that you take on, like the very basic, and then understanding like what are the different roles that typically fall within that those efforts? So maybe one second on history. So Ken and and I we grew Marlin and Associates for roughly 19 years, primarily doing doing two things really, really well, international deals and fintech deals. Fintech being everything from GRC to insured tech, payments, wealth tech, and capital markets. We became known as probably one of the top three fintech independent boutique banks out there in that space. And with that, back in 2019 and 2020, a lot of the bigger banks came knocking. A lot of people saw the lower end of the middle market as a great funnel for some of the bigger deals that they were doing. And especially the bent up, the IPO market was starting to take off in the fintech world. And so they came knocking, essentially trying to bring us in-house. So Ken and I sold the firm to DA Davidson back in the summer of 21. DA Davidson is primarily known as a wealth management firm, really owning that middle Midwest corridor. It's been around for roughly now, 88 years, we're roughly a little under 2,000 employees, privately owned. And the idea for us coming in was they had a fixed income practice, which was separate from the, the wealth management. They had an ECM practice that was roughly 20 years old that needed some help, but it was up and coming. And inside the ECM practice, they have an investment bank that had FIG, consumers, industrials, and then technology. And they've identified technology as one of the leading areas on where they wanted to take the bank over the next five, 10 years. And the bank itself had, I think, six MDs at the time, and they had just hired a, a debt team to augment some of the research that they were putting out and the names in the sales and trading world covered our fintech world a little bit. There was always these little tiny little touch points. And the idea was to bring in Marlin, to bring it all together. So now we came in. So this is two years later. We're roughly 45 bankers here in the States. We've got a partnership overseas where there's another 15 on the team. And we cover everything from healthcare IT to cybersecurity and infrastructure to tech-enabled business services to general software. But fintech is still the bulk of our deal flow. And when I say deal flow, this gets back to your question next. What do we do, right? So my basic day-to-day job is to help companies, large or small, figure out if they want to be buyers, if they want to be sellers, if they want to raise capital, or in some cases to help them figure out where they should go in the market. And that entails a lot. So if it's a very, very large publicly traded business, like we cover companies like EQ, Investnet, Clearwater, SS&C, it's constantly looking at the cap table and their financials, helping them 
figure out if they should go out and re-leverage debt. Maybe there's some secondary piece that they can go after, or maybe even a secondary piece for some fund that wants to take some money off the table, which we're seeing quite a bit of these days. On the lower end of the middle market, it's mostly dealing with growth equity and private equity firms and helping them either buy platforms or if they've got a platform for us to help understand where some of the tuck-ins are or sell them some of the privately owned businesses that we're dealing with. So that's pretty extensive, right, in terms of providing firms within that strata, strategic fundamental advice, augmenting their internal teams and potentially their owners also in trying to think about what is the best way for them to grow their business on a going forward basis, right? And whether it's through the injection of capital to spur internal organic growth or through alliances and to your point, the ability to acquire other businesses that might be accretive to the financial results of a given operation. So it's a pretty essential role. And for again, for listeners, I always try to strike a, a middle ground between the folks that are obviously very, very savvy, understand, and those that don't, because it's such an important role that teams like yours play in the market in not only bringing opportunities, strategic opportunities to management teams and their owners and their boards, but also in helping them formulate what should be their strategy, right? Because there's one thing that is often, I think, a misconception is that operators might be very, very good at running their business organically, but sometimes the strategic angle might be a blind spot or they might not have the full expertise, right? It's rare that you have all these from the get-go, right? Or usually it takes a career to have gone as a CEO or an executive to have gone through M&A cycles as well as like building organic growth, right? That is spot on. And so that role is so critical, right? And it, it oftentimes people are like, what do these bankers really do? Well, they're helping more efficient and more optimized ways to allocate capital. They're also helping, quite frankly, bridge the information gap, right? In telling some participants, hey, here's an opportunity that you should be looking at, right? And so I guess what I'm trying to, to say, and, and again to listeners, is the essential role that your profession plays in helping businesses, again, navigate there are different options for growth. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Maybe to piggyback on one of your comments a minute ago about some of these companies, they may know their business a certain way. But one of the joys I get when I bring on maybe a privately held company and an owner entrepreneur, he's looking to bring on capital or get sold. And he kind of comes into the management presentation, the practice sessions that we're going to do before we present. And I look him straight in the eye and I say, or her, and I'm going to say, you're going to learn more about your business in the next couple of weeks than you ever thought possible. Partly because I'm going to look at it a certain way. The buyers are going to look at it a certain way. The investors are going to look at it a certain way. And I need to make sure that we understand all of that going into those discussions. And it's fun to watch that. It's actually, it's an enjoyable, fun part. And I think where I'm heading with this is also when you're putting together very, very prominent investment management firms, for example, that are going to be, to your point, private equity and growth equity firms, for example, with potential targets, how do you ensure that you're going to maintain the quality of what you bring to those participants? I mean, similarly, when you bring an opportunity to a corporate development desk, what is the process by which you assess and vet and due diligence opportunities to say, this is worth us spending time on and bringing these two parties together 
his reputation obviously precedes you in this business and is is everything, right? It's what you live and, and die by. So walk us through a little bit how you guys diligence and assess opportunities. It's become much, much more vigorous over the last, I'd say, five, 10 years than it, than it was in the early 2000s, that's for sure, where I think you've got to know what the other side is looking for, right? So you need to know as much as you possibly can, including the the old adage, the skeletons in the closet for some of these companies before going and putting them in front of a company. Because not only the reputation for the company itself, but my reputation too. Like if I put a terrible business that I didn't do a lot of due diligence on in front of like an SS&C or Clearwater or, or, something, or Oracle or something like that, they're not going to take my calls as much as they did in the beginning, right? And so we need to do almost as much as the, the buyers. And whether that means we're going deep into the product set, the financials as much as we possibly can, to even bringing in outside quality of earnings professionals to come in and help us make sure that we're, one, interpreting it right, two, presenting it right, and three, the mechanics on how those numbers are made up are as defensible as humanly possible. Because what I don't want to do is put together a package, put it in front of a company, and they're going to start to do their own due diligence, probably more furiously towards the end of the deal to make sure that they're not being embarrassed. They're not underlooking something to where it could potentially kill the deal because something wasn't brought up earlier. So it's better to do that painstaking work in the beginning than later on. You'll have a high, as a banker, you'll have a higher close rate getting that done. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to give you an opportunity to really, again, educate listeners on that, because I do think that there is a cross-section and a dispersion in terms of how firms in your profession will approach this. And I think if you're playing the long game, you certainly want to err on the side of caution, because especially in, I'd say, frothy markets, and we went through one recently in 2021, you just have this natural tendency of companies looking for an exit will rush to market and try to paint as beautiful a picture as possible. You typically see this hockey stick curve. And lo and behold, you'll see a lot of deals sort of flatten out afterwards because something along the way has been missed in the due diligence. And so the more work you do in conservatively assessing exactly what the financial statements really mean and what's behind those financial statements and doing the work to your point in the same way that a buy side firm would do, saves you a lot of trouble and, and headache. And back to the key metric here, which is close rate. The last thing you want in this business is for a buy-side firm to pull out of a deal or retrade a deal just because they found something that was really just out of the ordinary. So I'm glad you clarified that. I would think your firm probably stands out in its process in doing so. So Marlon, you spent close to two decades really seeing the formative years of fintech and obviously that the space has evolved quite substantially and continues to, right? I think that's what's exciting. I mean, whether you're straddling the very early stage nature of it to venture or you're seeing the result of firms that are already well-established that are looking for the next step, the next growth wave and are trying to figure out, again, the mix of capital allocation and how they grow organically versus inorganically. So talk to us a little bit about how the space in your mind has evolved. And I guess one of the things I'd love to get into in this conversation is for listeners to understand that fintech is a very, very broad term and all-encompassing, right? And not all businesses within fintech are, first of all, even remotely close to in the same sectors. 
nor are they created equal, right? There are balance sheet businesses, there are software businesses, there are transactional businesses, there are consumption-based businesses. So it's a very wide space. So help us think, and I'm sure you've had to do this many, many times over the last couple of decades, is educate the listener as to how you help people structure the space, how you think about it, and what are the building blocks? Well, I look at it from a vertical perspective, right? Where like take capital markets technology, like the real nuts and bolts of a trading floor or a trading firm, right? Like there are multiple different layers on essentially what goes into that and multiple different scales of some of the businesses that go into that. So I look at it that way. And then insurance tech has got its own, GRC has got its own, which is governance, risk, and compliance. Wealth tech has got its own. In, in my mind, a lot of these companies kind of or a lot of these verticals kind of come and ebb and flow throughout the last 20, 25 years I've been doing this, over 20 years, right? So for capital markets technology, it's finally starting to come back into into vogue over the last maybe year or so. When payments was incredibly popular, wealth tech was incredibly popular over the last couple of uh, years. And then you're starting to see even more themes into the verticals itself, right? So even inside capital markets technology, cyber is a very, very big, buzzword that we're all working with. Essentially, who's hacking in? Who's getting some of the trading information that they shouldn't be? And then on top of that, how is AI helping them essentially navigate that or even build new products or build new revenue lines on it? But it's exciting to see how just that vertical itself has transformed over the last 20, 20 years, 25 years, right? So many, many years ago, you had T plus three. Once you had a trade, you had three days roughly to settle it, clear it, and report it. Now it's almost instantaneous. It's not there yet, but it's darn close. For the hedge fund world, it's gone through so many iterations of their version of what latency is. We used to have co-location pieces. One of the landmark deals that we did was we helped the New York Stock Exchange for almost three years essentially be their outsourced M&A group. We looked at hundreds of deals, hundreds of different business models, hundreds of different essentially strategic alternatives for that business, whether that be geographic or even different asset classes for that to go into, or even different data services that they should have went into rather than more that the transactional model. It's fun to watch how that's now coming back and you've got new names coming to market, even some that are using the blockchain for it. I think that what's really interesting in everything you've said and and the way one should really look at financial technology in general is, I like to think of it this way, like the financial services sector as a whole is one, if not the most profitable sector across all sectors. And that's true globally, right? So there's a tremendous amount of rent being extracted because at the heart, there's many aspects of the business that are a business of intermediation and managing the information asymmetry between two parties. Your business is one of them, for example. But if you're putting together two sides of the capital, buyers and sellers, allocators, uh, companies in need of capital, you're going to extract a premium from that and the franchise that that an entity or business has developed over time. So if you think about the overall growth of those end businesses that are being sold this technology to and whatever piece of their life cycle it's enabling, these businesses are really growing GDP, GDP levered, right? A bank isn't going to grow 100% 100% a year, right? An asset manager isn't going to grow 100% a year. It usually over time like ends up being that they're growing at the rate of the economy or some levered version of that, which means that fundamentally that the key side of the equation when it comes to P&L is the cost side. 
And so it's interesting to have seen how technology has really seeped into the financial services sector consistently wins when it's actually allowing those businesses to reduce their costs one way or another, right? And it's true in those workflows that you've described, right? And whether it's workflows in settling or enabling more volume through more advanced technology that allows people to trade more than they used to. Ultimately, it's matchmaking. It's bringing parties together. But in other corners, it's also allowing money to move more efficiently from one point to another. So I find it very interesting because even looking forward, I think the more, most compelling stories are around that cost notion. If you look at capital markets tech, which you and I are familiar with, many companies in space are faced with a buy versus build conversation internally, right? And oftentimes, and in more cases than not, the buy ends up being a much more compelling value proposition than built, right? For a slew of reasons that we could elaborate on. And so I find that as a sector, it's really one that's allowing businesses that ultimately are not necessarily growing at these hyper fast rates to really streamline their operations. And it's a cost story at the end of the day is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, but I totally get that, right? Like you've got companies like LSC, they bought Refinitiv and they brought it in and they're still going through the cost analysis on that. What I'd be more excited about is I actually think the very first question that a potential buyer asks itself, you know, the simple question is, do I want it? And I think over the last couple of years, maybe the last decade, that question has gone from, yes, I do. And then they immediately go into, well, where are the cost synergies? And it's not that it's overlooked, but I think it should get more attention is essentially the revenue synergies. How can I cross sell this into my additional clients? How is this going to increase my TAM on the the wallet share for the, the CFO, the head trader, whoever else I'm selling into? That's what I'm more excited about. I think that's what's going to get more momentum inside a deal is how much more money can you make off of this product? You're selling it once, twice, three times. Can you sell it 10, 15, 20 times inside your organization? I love that aspect of it rather than going to immediately the cost savings saying like, who can I slash? How can I get rid of costs? Where can I save money on this and increase my EBITDA line? I'd Not to say that it's overlooked, but I'd like to get back to that piece. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that's inherently in the equation where strategically a board is looking at making a decision, especially when it comes to M&A, that obviously needs to play into what potential new lines of businesses also could they get into should that be enabled, right? So it makes, I see the, the angle there and it makes total sense. Where do you see, for example, on that front, areas where buyers of, of businesses are either looking for opportunities to grow their revenues or enter new lines of businesses? Like, what are the most dynamic places? You've talked about resurgence, especially over the last 12 months on the capital markets front. Where they want to get... So everybody's going to be different, right? If you're talking to a bank tech, embedded finance, insure tech, GRC, I'd say besides capital markets tech, GRC is probably the number one, the second vertical that I'm most excited about. Honestly, for a very selfish reason, where governance risk and compliance is a budget line that just skyrocketed back in 18, 19, and 20. And it's not going down. That's one budget line that's not going to get cut that much over the next couple of years. It may not grow as much, but it's not going away. And the cost essentially analysis on that is do you spend $100,000 on a piece of software that's going to help you sleep well at night or guarantee that you're not going to be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal over some data breach is worth the fine or the amount of cost is going to be for you to clean up whatever breach you had. 
And that is one of the more exciting areas that I'm going into and doing deals inside this space, whether that be inside the bank world where, or even actually cannabis is becoming, I think banking cannabis is becoming more and more prominent in that world. That's the number one piece of what I'm looking for. But yeah, I, and I love GRC for similar reasons, right? I think of it as almost like a floor that keeps increasing year after year because the requirements end up being more complex. It's a cost of doing business. You can't rip it out. Once you're in, you just layer on top of it. And again, from the buyers of those technologies perspective, it's an insurance cost. So it's they're trading for insurance premium there, right? Essentially, that's what it is. And it's also how to do it in a way that doesn't eat in their precious margins, right? So again, the value proposition in that space is how can you deliver that functionality that will keep increasing in complexity over time while delivering real value to the end users and buyers of this technology so that it doesn't eat too much into their activities, right? Yeah. And I, I see a lot of the bigger banks out there don't want to do it themselves. Maybe they're, they've come to realize that they're just not the expert inside that space and they like to outsource it. So from the lower end of the middle market, the companies that we're dealing with inside that space, it's, it's a perfect storm. What do you think of the fragmentation in GRC, though? Like, what's your take on consolidation? You have highly specialized vendors that cover very specific problems. Do you see room for someone is to, to really start consolidating that? And you see trends towards that? Yeah, I do. The consolidation piece has been uh, actually a really nice really business line for me over the last, I'd say, a couple of years. It's nice to see some of the bigger boys out there, $100, $200, 300000000 million in revenue start to really look inside the token space. I mean, the, the general advice that myself and probably a lot of other bankers have given those companies over the years is to become an expert inside that field and only become an expert inside that field. You'll get big enough just off of that TAM. It's that big, no matter what you're, whatever, what vertical you're looking at. And after a while, the bigger companies will see you as a scaled business, not a lifestyle business that they'd like to go after. And now you're seeing some of them come out that they're big enough to be platforms by themselves. And so they're competing against the smaller tuck-ins along with the bigger guys, which is great to see. This reminds me of you know, like the Morningstar in the early 2000s and up to like 2008, 2009, lower end of the middle market type firm. And they just started acquiring like crazy because they had built the platform and they were excellent inside their space. So one of the things I'm interested in getting your thoughts on is that in fintech broadly, you have, and so as someone who advises boards on capital structure and capital strategy and M&A strategy, you have a very different set of players depending on which sub-vertical within fintech you're looking at. The reason I'm saying this is in capital markets tech, oftentimes you've seen firms that are essentially spinoffs from financial services firms like broker-dealers, for example, which built technology in-house and then figured out that there was more value to unlock to spin out the technology business and license the technology to peers. And oftentimes the holding structure, the capital structure there is very unique, right? You typically have an ownership where maybe they'll brought on a sponsor or maybe it'll still be primarily owned by some of the principals of the owners of the broker dealer. Some firms were literally bootstrapped and got to pretty decent lower middle market scale through their own efforts. Maybe the founders were previous Wall Street executives. They had a little bit of cash. You know, They used that to get started. So they don't actually have outside investors. 
and they get to those levels where they probably need to step into the arena and start onboarding maybe a growth equity firm or even consider like a liquidity event because maybe they've gotten to this age where they're like, I've worked really hard. The business is where it's at. Maybe someone needs to take it to the next level. So explain the nuances of how these different types of stakeholders, and I I didn't mean to admit it, but there's also a slew of firms that are venture capital backed. Team of founders identifies an idea, gets backing from some of the top firms in the market, being Fin Capital, QED, some of those like top name firms. And they get to a point where they call on you, Max, to say, okay, well, we're in the market right now and we need to raise a lot of money, or we think we need to raise a lot of money. So talk to us about how these different stakeholder structures impact the nature of the conversation that you have with them. That's a tough one, given how open-ended that was. It just depends on either the size of the business, the motivation of the people who are actually going to go forward with the business. So we talked about growth equity-backed business. That still means that the CEO or the management team have got to take that business forward. Just because they don't own a lot, they're still looked at as key to the future of that business. Consortiums have this issue of how do they actually get out? There's a lot of them out there, like Visible Alpha, Symphony. There's a couple of them, and you're sitting here trying to figure out, like, what's their end game? Are they big enough to IPO? Maybe not. Do they recap, which is going to change the entire structure of the board with maybe a private equity firm? What we're doing quite a bit these days, one, we're going in and giving very, very frank advice lately on valuations. Revaluations are not what they were back in 21, 20. And people need to realize that just because you got a valuation or maybe you went out with a busted process back in the day, you should not anchor your valuation to that number. You need people like me to come in and essentially I may be the bearer of bad news, but nobody wants a broken process. So if we're all going to be in, in the process, the deal process together, we need to be on the same page. Second thing what we're doing is we're giving optionality to the boards. So we're doing a lot of what we call dual processes these days. We're taking a company and we're essentially doing two different things with it. We're saying, you know, as an example, this is what the company would do with a $100 million raise. This is, it's lined out piece by piece by piece, month by month, year by year on exactly what they will do with that money and what it means for their P&L and their product strategy. And the like. the second piece of that is we're packaging the company and we're going to some of the bigger strategic acquirers and saying, we're raising money right now. We believe in the company and the future of the business that much, but we want to give you, Mr. Acquirer, the option to maybe take that option off the table now. If not, that's great. Maybe we'll come back to you in two, three years when we do another process. But if you're looking to acquire this type of specific product or client set, here's an option. And if you don't, that's great. The board will understand, but at least the board wants that answer. And on the flip side of that, when you go out for the growth round, I used to work at Veronis. This is a question you asked yourself even before you wrote that check. How am I going to get my money out? So if you've got bigger strategics around the table, at least knowing about the business and having it on their radar, that gives you some confidence. So the dual process works in a number of ways to help maximize your valuation, your optionality, and essentially it helps quiet everybody on the board on what you didn't do, depending on what you did. And this, by thence, you highlighted the value of your advice in coming and helping, you know, all the different parties in that process. And so 
there's a method by which you do that, which you've cleverly highlighted here, which I really like, and hopefully listeners will draw a lot of insights from. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about is obviously it's been a very important theme this year, and this is referring to across the board, I would say even like for more mature, already profitable businesses, as well as high growth businesses, where there's been a shift from this concept of growth at all costs, where capital was obviously much more widely available and and investors were more willing to keep supporting businesses with the hopes that with growth would come the next round of financing or the next transaction to a mode where I've heard the term managing to margins and just an overall shift in the narrative, but also in the numbers and the action, right? Because when it comes down to it, maybe less visible in the private markets, although it's happening in public markets, you see in the dispersion in fintech names, where the higher quality names are heavily rewarded for their effort versus those that are not, right? And so operational efficiency and what McKinsey recently labeled like shrink to grow, the outperformers are the ones who can really transform, reconfigure their cost structure or and also help others to do so through the technology that they say. So talk to us about how that's affected your business and maybe affected is probably not the right way to, to coin it as more like, how have you worked with your clients with the shift in mindset? Well, the first, it always comes back to the backers, right? If you've got a company that's growth equity backed, which is different from private equity or, or has no backers, which is rare these days, essentially, what is their investment style? And when did they raise a last round? I mean, we come across companies that raised at the height and they raised plenty of money. And as soon as the we got the downturn. They became profitable as soon as they possibly could. And they're still sitting on millions and millions of dollars. So they don't have much to do. They made the right choice. They may have raised a devaluation that's unattainable right now, but they've got plenty of runway in front of them. And the growth equity firm behind them doesn't have to do much or worry about them. On the flip side of that, right after the downturn, there was many companies out there where they were told to become break-even or profitable as soon as they can. Like Sequoia had a, a huge PowerPoint presentation that went out many, many years ago that still resonates in my head on that. It's cut slash get us get to break even ASAP. The downturn's coming. Be prepared. Those type of companies, I'd say seven out of 10 probably didn't become profitable, didn't become even break even. And that's why you saw so many fire sales over the last year or so. Or in some cases, they were just shut down. They tried their best. They spent their time out there, hat in hand, trying to get as much as they could, and they just couldn't. And they either sold for IP or the like. The tier ones from some of the growth equity firms, the high flyers, the one are actually growing quite quickly and are still negative, which is hard. Those are actually the ones that have a better chance of getting, still being negative, EBITDA negative, and still getting funded quite a bit. You may not see it in the press that much, just because I don't think a lot of companies want to advertise that. But if you're still growing above that rule of 50, 60, 70%, and you're still burning, you're still going to be able to get funding. It may not be at the valuation you want it, but you're still going to be able to get it. I think the challenge, yet to your point, and it, it creates an interesting niche, and you and I have talked about it, is when the, the customer base is solid, like all the fundamentals when it comes to revenue generation, be it retention, being diversification, being the quality of the customers is there, but the growth, for whatever reason, might be endogenous reasons, might be exogenous reasons, it's just not in that top bucket that you alluded to. And I agree with you. I think deals where you see that kind of like top growth, top line growth of 50 and up, deals will get done because I think investors are able to build comfort around 
the ability to underwrite that kind of risk in an environment where many companies are failing to attain such levels of growth, right? So it, you're clearly showing exceptional product market fit and beyond if you're able to achieve those kinds of growth rates. The issue, again, is if you're flattening. And that goes back to your comments about how much due diligence do we do? So one of the most important ones, important pieces of that that we do is the, the pipeline analysis. We go through name by name, customer by customer, and even in the sales pipeline itself, essentially give me a weight. And I talk to, we talk to the sales guys, and it's almost playing like bet your job, Mr. Sales Guy, on is this customer going to hit this number this year or not? And then that goes into the second piece, which I think I told you in the beginning of this, how much pitch work and how much customer work we're doing right now in the market. We're incredibly busy. And a lot of it has to do with how good is the fourth quarter going to be for a lot of these companies, because you're getting that fourth quarter push. That's going to help them figure out if they're going to go out in Q1 or Q2 to raise capital or to sell. If it's anywhere near where they think it's going to be, and they had a robust budget or forecast for this year, you're going to see a huge amount of activity early next year, given the pent-up demand to go out. But again, it's always going to come back to, are those customers going to buy now, or are they going to push into Q1? The discipline on pipeline analysis is key, and I'm glad you're bringing this up. And in establishing what is the true quality of the management you know, explanation of their forecast and be able to back it up beyond just some lofty goals that are trying to inflate the numbers. So there again, the, the data analysis and the work pays off in building more confidence. And quite frankly, also from your team's perspective, developing a more holistic view of the true picture of what this specific segment of the economy looks like, right? So you're essentially becoming a lot more educated in one corner of the market that might educate another corner of the market that you're involved in. So I really like that. And again, doing the work pays off ultimately. How are your clients preparing for 2024, right? I mean, so the story is 2022 was a huge duration shock. 2023 was really supposed to be a disaster and many called for a collapse of the economy. But the reality is, if we just look at macro for a second, we're seeing this interesting paradigm where the vast majority of public market participants are seeing rates decreasing in the next 12 to 24 months. And that view is very anchored and it's actually very supportive of asset prices and continuing to keep financial conditions, I wouldn't say loose, but looser than they would be if the economy w was collapsing, right? So we're seeing a lot of resilience and so the reason I'm painting this macro backdrop in terms of like 23 really hasn't played out the way many thought it was going to play out. How are clients thinking about 2024 with that in mind? So I'll, I'll answer that three ways, right? You've got the, the smaller companies, whether they're private equity, growth equity backed or not. You've got the bigger strategics. And then you've got the larger companies with, that have IPO prospects. The bigger strategics, they're on the hunt. They came out in, I'd say, August and September with a relatively aggressive calling plan, where in some cases, they got over some of the heartburn on some of the prices or products that they bought back in 21. They're actively they're sitting on a tremendous amount of cash, and they're getting pressure from their management and their LPs to or their shareholders to, to spend that money and go out. They're increasingly looking at the lower end of the middle market rather than the bet my job, multi-billion dollar deal mostly because those are incredibly expensive. But the lower end of the middle market, you can spend 
hundreds of millions of dollars and you can buy 10, 15 companies in a very, very good picture to your shareholders on, on essentially how you're managing the future of the company. And so we expect a huge amount of activity next year, just from the strategic picking up stuff. From the growth equity businesses, so we're seeing a lot of them come to us saying that they're looking to essentially exit. They've been sitting on a decent amount of their portfolio over the last year or so, maybe two, when they should have sold some of these businesses, given the whole period that they've got. And let's, let's also remember that GPs at the funds themselves have bosses. And if they're sitting on a decent amount of dry powder, they're getting pressure from their LPs to put money to work and go out there and acquire. And then on the flip side of that, they're also looking at fundraising. There's a decent amount of companies out or firms out right now that have to lock in some of those IRRs on their existing portfolio to go out to put those inside their PowerPoint presentations to get the next fund up and running. And that takes time. And it takes time to unload a lot of those businesses. The fun thing that I'd like to talk about is the pent up demand from the IPO market. A lot of companies wanted to go two years ago, you know, just like a lot of the M&A, a lot of them couldn't go out just from decreased prices or lack of interest or the valuations out there for the, the publicly traded businesses. And, you know, then all of a sudden you saw a series C, D, E, F, G, H, I get done for just essentially just elongating that timeline. Companies, we understand, are starting to essentially put the processes in motion on going out maybe towards the end of next year and maybe early 2025 on that. That's really going to be a shot in the arm for the industry and not only jumpstart, but I think you're going to see a huge amount of just euphoria in the market getting done then. I'm certainly hoping for it to play out the way you're painting it, because I think byproduct of this easy money era that we witnessed over the last 15 years was that it's almost like you have adverse selection in public markets and bringing a product to public markets where it essentially becomes the place where potentially underperforming asset are being dumped. Whereas if you have a high quality asset, there's no shortage of high quality growth equity capital to continue propping up those private valuations. So I think maybe, and that would be a result of just overall cost of capital mean reverting to levels that are historically in the norm, because let's not forget where we've mean reverted to levels that are perfectly normal. They're not abnormally high. They're much higher than we've been used to over the last 15 years. But And so maybe one of the byproducts is we're going to get, again, the light at the end of the tunnel, the, the carrot of the IPO again becoming or coming back to what it used to be, which is the healthy path. Like when you build a company, you get VC funding, you have an idea, you want to take it public at some point. Like you don't want to stay private and then exit through some secondary deal. By the way, this brings me to a point I certainly wouldn't want to get your expertise on is how are deals and funding structures and covenants affected? I'm not contradicting myself. Rates are higher than they have been for the last decade. So it does bring upon us like a change in the way people look at how to structure deals. Can you talk a little bit about that? So I guess that goes into what the advice I'm going to give a board or a client. For some of the companies out there that maybe haven't gotten off that valuation anchor that they had years ago, it's going to be very, very tough for them to go out and get that number and not have a structured deal. Whether that structure means, I think you're hearing it a lot of days, it's just liquidity preference. As simple as that. You've got a company that's got 40, maybe, yeah, 30, 40 million pounds or dollars in revenue and they want to go out for a 450 or $500 million valuation. If they're not growing quite quickly, sometimes they may be able to get that done, but 
the structure on top of that, liquidity preference, terms and conditions on that money is going to be incredibly expensive. And unfortunately, in some cases, if you don't use that money and help put rocket fuel on that company to grow into a valuation three, four years down the road, you're essentially selling the business right then and there. I, I hate to say it, given the liquidity stack on top of that. And we see that quite a bit. We saw that quite a bit back in 21. Yeah, no, and and it, look, for investors, it made sense, right? I mean, that's it becomes a way to get really comfortable underwriting a deal and knowing that eventually like there's really two choices. You either do a down round or recap the business, quite frankly, just to get it the capital that it needs. Or if for whatever externality, the valuation is a sticking point, there's no other way to compensate for it than through lick prefs in order to compensate investors for the risk they're taking, especially in a scenario where there isn't as clear of a path towards a high growth outcome. So I think it makes sense. And I think until we see valuations, quite frankly, becoming more disciplined so that you don't have these outlier outcomes, or I think the expectation being anchored around those valuations need to mean revert. But the key thing with mean reversion is it always takes a lot longer than people expected it to. So I suspect this is going to go on for a while because the muscle memory, especially at the earlier stages, is still very, very, very anchored. So I think those structured deals are going to continue for the foreseeable future. I was going to say, that's the beauty of the process, right? You go out, you like, I can sit here and talk to the board on where I think a valuation for a company is going to be all day, right? But it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. It's what's somebody going to pay for it? And what are the risks around that money? So if we go out and we do a dual process and a strategic comes in at a much, much lower price, but essentially the risk on getting that deal done at that price, having some money in your pocket rather than doubling down with the growth equity firm or private equity, they may not be able to stomach that. So at that point in time is when you really have a CEO look himself in the mirror and say, what do I really want to do? What I understand where the, the valuation of the business is now, given where the market came back. Now's the time. Yeah. I mean, to your point, yeah. I mean, an asset is only worth what people are willing to pay for it. So that's a great way to set it for folks to understand exactly how deals are going to get done and, and what's going to trade at the end of the day. It's been real pleasure chatting about the market. I'm encouraged. I mean, I read in, in your tone and I know we've been chatting throughout the year. There's been a noticeable change in just deal flow. And you, know, you were just telling me how you guys are out pitching and Certainly, there's a lot of pent-up demand. And to your point, there's a life cycle in, in the life of both corporations, but also funds where capital is going to have to get put to work and situations have to be corrected at some point. So this kicking the can down the road is only going to last so long. And I think we're probably closer to the end of this adjustment period where things are going to have to trade. Now, where they're going to trade, back to your point about where investors are seeing fair value and where buyers are seeing fair value. That's a separate question. And that's what we're going to be dealing with throughout next year. And that's where your advice comes in very, very handy. Because at the end of the day, you're helping boards really understand how to assess the value of what they're looking at, right? And more so than at any other point in the cycle, is it going to be important to have high quality advice by your side in order to make those decisions? It's going to be a fun time over the next year or so. Great. Well, I certainly hope it's going to be a hell of a year next year. Sounds like you're gearing up for a lot. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that evolves and keeping in touch and seeing you guys perform in the market. Thanks, Max. Thanks for having me. This was fun. 
This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.